Our scripture passage today is taken from Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? This is the word of Christ. I want to put a tag on our message today. The gendered body, the gendered body, fearfully and wonderfully made. The gendered body, fearfully and wonderfully made. For some time now, our American culture has been practicing a unique way of uh, announcing the birth of a child. Uh, They're called gender reveal parties. Have you heard of this term, gender reveal parties? Have you, maybe you've hosted one, maybe you've attended one, uh, a gender reveal party. So, you know, there's a balloon pop, and then, you know, it's either pink or blue powder that or there's a, a, a balloon box reveal, and um, you know, a, a boy or girl co- you know, in letters come from the cardboard box. There. Or there's, you can go the confetti route if you want, uh, or uh, the paint, or you can, there's a sports way of a gender reveal, like hitting a baseball, or uh, you know, like a boxing punch. Um, I'm still waiting for the golf to, you know, um, that said, I, th- I think my preference is the donut filling reveal. Yeah, the donut filling reveal. Amen. Excitement, promises, hopes for the future. A new member of the family uh, will soon be born. And the parents will soon engage in the rewarding and exhausting privilege of rearing a son, rearing a daughter. Gender reveal parties. In gender reveal parties, parents wittingly or unwittingly communicate a very important truth that biblical Christianity affirms about human embodiment. See, at the time of the reveal, how do the parents know which gender? The answer is biologically. Biologically, the whole premise of a gender reveal party is that gender is rooted in biology. But it's that very fact, biology rooted gender, that's what's contested today in our secular culture. Historian Carl Truman said that there exists today an entire civilization of people who see themselves as, quote, living Plato attached to a will. That is, we believe, or rather, we live in a world that believes it's possible to chisel an identity for yourself by means of your personal wishes. And this can be done through clothing, cosmetics, pharmaceuticals, surgery, or legislation. Millions believe this. Why? 
Why? We're in a series on the body, human embodiment, and we're trying to answer the question, what does biblical Christianity teach about the body? And last week we began with the created body. We learned that our bodies were made to magnify God. Made to magnify. We're made to magnify. Our bodies are not for self-expression. Rather, God magnification. We learned that last week. We learned the truth of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That the Bible begins with God, not with us. We learned that we're totally dependent on Him for life. This is what the Apostle Paul said to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, quoting one of their own poets. Paul said, in Him we live and move and have our being. As God's image bearers, we learned that our visible bodies were made to display His invisible glory, what a privilege that is. That visible embodiment is meant to magnify and display the invisible splendor and glory of God. That's what we learned. And as a result, then, we learned the truth of 1 Corinthians 16, 19 to 20, where Paul says, You are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. Knowledge of God is essential to self-knowledge. We cannot know ourselves until we first know God. That's what we learned last week, the created body. Well, today we're going to talk about the gendered body. What does biblical Christianity teach about the gendered body? Now, church family, um, it's been uh, our privilege, Sarah and mine's privilege, to be here at Windsor Road Christian Church. This summer, it'll be 33 years. 33 years. God be, God be praised. Yeah. Um, in my interview with the pulpit committee, I was never asked if I would be willing to preach a sermon on gender. I mean, yet here we are. Here we are. And believe me, believe me uh, when I say that it would, it would just be much easier for me to preach on the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, I mean, or, or, or you know, David and Goliath. I don't see any Philistine lovers out in the crowd, so. And my privilege as your pastor is to speak the truth in love. And I, I do not serve us by speaking truth in an unloving way, and nor do I serve us by simply loving you without speaking truth. 
Speaking the truth in love sometimes means teaching what's hard. And so my aim is to speak and to live and to relate and to pastor in a manner that conveys confidence in God's word with Christ-like humility. And so how we hold a position is as important as the position we hold. So with that, um, here's our big idea for today. According to the Bible's view of reality, God created our bodies such that our gender is rooted in our biology. That is, from the Bible's point of view, the objective fact of the body's biology determines the body's gender. And for this, I praise you, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's our big idea today. Now, some would say, I believe that. Amen, pastor. Others might say, I don't know. I don't know. And still others might say, I don't believe that. My question to all of those responses is, why? Why? Do you know why you believe it or why you don't? In order to have a meaningful conversation about gender, we really need to have a conversation about worldview. Worldview, worldview. Worldview deals with questions such as, who are we? How did we get here? Why am I here? What's my purpose? What's wrong with this world? What's the solution? How does all this turn out? The, these big sky questions uh, deal with worldview. Your, world, your worldview is a set of lenses or glasses through which you see the world. Your, your world your, you don't look at the windshield when you drive. You look through the windshield. Okay? So your worldview has to do with the, the lenses through which you see the world. But your worldview is also a map telling you where you are in the world. And then your worldview is also a compass telling you where you need to go. See, Your worldview is about your assumptions and convictions concerning reality. And they're often unspoken assumptions. That's, that's the nature of the word assumption. Our worldview becomes apparent in our decision-making, especially moral decision-making. When you're trying to make a decision about what's morally right or wrong, to help you find the answer, you look to three words. Authority, knowledge, and trustworthiness. Authority, knowledge, and trustworthiness. Authority has to do with the question, who has the right to tell me what to do? Knowledge has to do with the question, who knows what is best for me to do? Trustworthiness has to do with the question, who loves me and wants What's best for me? Authority, knowledge, and trustworthiness. Find a person or a book or an institution or a place that offers these three, and that's where you're going to go to make your decisions. Six years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. 
Five years ago, I had surgery. Um, since then, about every six months, I go and I have blood work to see where I stand. And so last week, uh, I went for my labs, and the report came back medically undetectable, which, which that's good news. See, for the past five years, that's good news. Thank you, God. Here's the deal. I never saw my cancer. Uh, I mean, I was told I had it. I was given information, words printed on a report saying that I had cancer, but I was told by a specialist, a physician, a surgeon, who conducted tests and a couple of biopsies. Uh, the specialist said that he went to school and graduated. He was hired at a large clinic. When I went to his office, I saw a certificate. It seemed authentic. But I didn't check his transcripts. I did ask how many surgeries he'd done. Several hundred. All right. I made, I made a decision. I trusted him. Now, I didn't feel sick at the time. Actually, I felt fine. But yet the reality of my body indicated otherwise. And so I had to trust someone other than myself. Why? Why? Because of my worldview. That's why. My worldview. In my worldview, I believe that there is a reality external to myself. And, and therefore, I gave authority to someone with knowledge and experience whom I considered trustworthy and whom I believed was looking out for my best interests. So, so mine was an evidence-based decision in a trustworthy source beyond myself. Authority, knowledge, trustworthiness. A conversation about the gendered body is really about worldview. And what I want to do now is unpack two distinct worldviews and their perspectives on gender. There is a secular worldview about gender, and then there's a biblical worldview about gender. And they're, they're mutually exclusive. What is the secular worldview about gender? The prevailing secular worldview about gender holds to chosenness as opposed to givenness, changeability as opposed to stability. The prevailing secular worldview on gender says that it is determined, not discovered, and that the self is the key authority on gender determination. So gender is not objectively given. Instead, it is subjectively determined. Uh, one person put it crudely on a BBC broadcast. It doesn't matter what living meat skeleton you've been born in. It's what you feel that defines you. That's the secular worldview. Gender is determined by one's internal psychology, not one's external biology. Now, now 
what's behind this? And I would argue that it's worldview, a two-story fact-value worldview. Please stay with me here. A two-story fact-value worldview. When you go to work tomorrow, especially in our uh, public institutions, at our university, in in, uh, the business world, in secular life, we are seen as public-private individuals. There's a public life and there's a private life. A sociologist called this a public-private split. This is my public life and this is my private life. And, and th- so the public sphere is based on scientific knowledge. The private sphere is based on personal preferences. It's a two-story worldview. Uh, the lower story is fact. The upper story is value. Uh, the lower story has to do with that publicly verifiable truth. The upper story has to do with socially constructed meanings. In, in the in the two-story fact-value split, the lower story would locate that historical era called the Enlightenment, where with its emphasis on science and reason in, on the first floor, and, and then it would locate that historical era called the Romantics, religion and humanities emphasis in the upper story, lower story, upper story. Uh, matter is located in the lower story. The mind is located in the upper story Uh, when applied to human life. uh, The lower story would recognize the unborn as a human, but differentiate it from the upper story of personhood, you see. And then when this fact-value, two-story worldview split is applied to gender, the lower story would locate biological sex on the first floor but the notion of gender on the second floor and so in this two-story fact value split gender and sex are separate are divided see that that's a worldview and in this worldview gender is not just binary male or female in this fact value worldview Gender is a spectrum, a spectrum. That's why Facebook, you know, has multiple gender identities that the user can select. Over the years in Western civilization, the external human body has become disconnected from or non-essential to our internal self. More and more decision-making authority has been granted to the inner emotional psychological self. And society has encouraged this in a manner unparalleled in our modern world. And it's grounded on a two-story fact-value worldview. I mean, it's critical for us to realize that the world is constantly filtering what we say through this mental fact-value grid. And thus, to claim that gender is rooted in biology, the world simply replies, oh, that's not a fact, that's just your belief, and they kick it upstairs. This is why the late sociologist Peter Berger spoke about this when he said the individual is left to his own devices in a wide range of activities that are crucial to the formation of a meaningful identity from expressing his religious preference to settling on a sexual lifestyle. 
So, so the fact value grid immediately dismisses the objective content of anything we might say, and we won't be successful in introducing the content of our belief into the public discussion until we first find a way to get past this gatekeeper. Because the gatekeeper is trained to say, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Isn't that what Oprah says on, to her guests on interviews? Tell me your truth. But the problem is that we've already seen what the world looks like when authority for decision-making is vested solely in ourselves. What makes my inner self the most qualified person to determine my identity? Now, you know, if I stood up here and said, look, I no longer identify as a 5'11 male, all right, 5'10 and a half, okay? I'm 5'11 with shoes on. But I no longer choose to identify as a five foot eleven Anglo male pastor. My upstairs inner self now leads me to identify as a six foot five inch professional basketball player of another ethnicity. Now you might say, well, okay, because this is church and you know, you're cordial. But inside, it's like, that's not reality. That's not reality. Now, I'm not saying that the disconnect some have between their inner self and their external biology isn't hard or painful. I'm not saying that at all. Of course, yes, of course it is. I'm not saying that, that you know, individuals you know, don't suffer. I'm not, I'm, our mission as a church is to love God and love people, and we want to come alongside and walk with people gently, patiently, and truthfully, no matter what their struggle is. No matter what their struggle is. We want to give hope in the name of Christ. And, a, and, and this means being grounded in reality. Francis Schaeffer, uh, a brilliant uh, philosopher, a, a deep believer in Jesus, said that, the, uh, that autonomous freedom puts the individual at the center of the universe. Autonomous freedom is a freedom that is without restraint and the Bible gives us a picture of a nation attempting to exercise autonomous freedom and it's called the book of Judges and the very last verse of the book of Judges reads in those days there was no king in Israel some of your translations say, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And beloved, that's the vicious 
end game of the fact value split. The idea that we are born free and autonomous is nonsense. And many of the problems we now see in society are predicated on this false worldview that does not conform to reality. There is nothing autonomous, nothing apart from the lordship of Jesus Christ and the authority of his scriptures. God made men and women whole. We're a body-soul composite. God is interested in men and women whole. We are created as a unified body-soul composite. And that takes us to the Bible's view of reality. So what is the biblical worldview regarding gender? Well, we need to look to the very beginning of the Bible. The account of creation. And specifically, I want to show you Genesis 1.27. In Genesis 1.27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1.27. Now, you'll notice in your translations that this is offset. That is to say, it's, it's stylized, poetic verse with three lines repetition and parallelism christopher yuan is a professor at moody bible institute i commend his book holy sexuality yuan notes that in verse 27 line one is foundational for the next two lines so line one god created man in his own image Line two repeats line one in reverse order. In the image of God, he created them. Line three replaces the singular him with the plural them. But there's something else to observe. The phrase male and female replace the phrase in his own image. Now, in Hebrew, often to express the superlative there is a threefold repetition. So, for instance, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. What does that mean? That means that God is the holiest being in the universe. Here in Genesis 1:27, the three parallel lines make us pause and think about a profound truth which Dr. Yuan states, just as the image of God is essential to who we are, male or female is essential to who we are. So according to Genesis 1.27, God created biological sex and gender as indivisible. This is Orthodox Biblical Christianity Church. And it is stated in a manner that reflects beautiful poetry. That we are made in the image of God, male and female. This is, po this is poetry. You are poetry that God has written. Now, God is neither male nor female, 
But one reason why Genesis was written was to refute the erroneous worldviews of the ancient Near East. These pagan mythologies which asserted that the universe came into existence either through a battle of the gods or through the sexual union of a male god and female god. Genesis is anti-myth. Genesis is presenting reality. God through Moses, gave his word to Israel, stating that as the sole maker of heaven and earth, God created sexual differentiation in the bodies of his image bearers. And so God stands above the binary of gender. God is neither male nor female because God transcends male and female. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, you will notice a dualistic pattern. In other words, there's a two-ness to creation. There's nothing and something. There's the creator and the creature. There's heaven and earth, light and darkness, day and night, evening and morning. The water's above, the water's below. Dry land, waters, sun and moon, work and rest, tree of life, tree of knowledge, good and evil. This binary pattern extends to the creation of human life, male or female, XX or XY. And at the conclusion in verse 31, God saw that everything he made, and behold, it was very good. Gender embodiment is beautiful and gestures beyond itself, prompting belief in the goodness of God, its creator. And gender is the most fundamental given of human embodied existence. Uh, Greg Allison has written a helpful book called Embodied. And he said, think about it. Your cell in your, each cell in your body each cell in your body consists of 23 pairs of chromosomes. 22 pairs are identical in both men and women. Your skin tone, the color of your iris, dimples, freckles, flat feet, high arch, hypermobile fingers, that's me. All of these traits are inherited regardless of one's sex, but one pair is the sex chromosome. Every cell in a woman's body has an XX sex chromosome, and every cell in a man's body has an XY sex chromosome. So, so, so fearfully and wonderfully, human beings are male and female all the way through. And the sex chromosome determines that a person is either a woman or a man, male or female. Gender is the fundamental given of human embodied existence and so what that means is that I experience myself I relate to others and to God as an embodied man and my wife Sarah experiences herself and relates to others and to God as an embodied woman and I can try all I want but I cannot experience life from Sarah's perspective we are perspectively gendered. We are embodied human beings observing and living through male or female eyes. Um, quickly, look to Psalm 139. 
verses 13 to 16. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, where David says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. So, so according to David, your soul or your spirit was not created independently of the body and then placed into the body. David says, as the Lord knit my body together in my mother's womb, I was made in the secret place. In other words, the biological sex into which we've been born indicates the gender given to us and is to be welcomed as a gift from God. You are a flesh-spirit composite. The soul is the soul of the body, and the body is the body of the soul. There is an integrated body-soul wholeness. And you know, we know this from everyday experience. For instance, we don't say, my mouth is hungry. We don't say that. We say, I'm hungry. We don't say, the sounds of vowels and consonants that came from your vocal cords and entered my auditory system were translated by my brain, causing me to experience emotional disequilibrium. Nobody says that. Instead, we say, hey, what you said hurt my feelings. Why? Because you have a body, you are a body. You have a soul, you are a soul. As image bearers created, male or female, the task of emotional, psychological maturity involves accepting our gender as a gift and learning to love it even while acknowledging that it doesn't come without problems. Of course we should expect disconnections and struggles because this is a sinful, broken, fallen world. The strongest witness for created and gendered embodiment comes from Jesus himself, our scripture reading in Matthew 19.4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, please hear me. Other than the ability to bear children, there are no particular abilities or traits that belong exclusively to men or women. Instead, there are common human abilities and common human traits that will naturally be expressed by women in ways that are fitting to women and expressed by men in ways that are fitting to men. Men and women uniquely express common human traits as men and women. For example, abilities such as reasoning, emotion, and planning, those are not gender-specific. They're common to women and men in ways that reflect their femaleness and maleness. Furthermore, traits such as gentleness, courage, initiative, nurturing, patience, protectiveness, those are not gender-specific. They're common human abilities. Think about the fruit of the Spirit that Paul gives us in Galatians 5. 
For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Which of those are exclusively masculine? Which of those are exclusively feminine? None. They are Christian virtues to be practiced by women and men in ways that reflect their femaleness and maleness. Self-sacrifice is not gender-specific. All of us are to put others before self in the name of Christ. Oh, and furthermore, it's a mistake to speak of masculine attributes of God and feminine attributes of God. Masculine and feminine have to do with the body. God is not embodied. And sometimes people incorrectly speak of the masculine and feminine attributes of Jesus. Some talk about the so-called feminine side of uh, Jesus, such as when he washed the disciples' feet or healed the sick or showed compassion to women and children or wept at the tomb of Lazarus. But these traits are, are, are not solely feminine or masculine they're human traits there are no particular capacities and properties that belong exclusively to women or exclusively to men instead there are common human abilities and common human traits that will be expressed in gendered ways and this truth is why we need each other Women need men, and men need women. And I'm not just talking about in terms of marriage. I'm talking about to help one another beyond our own limited viewpoint so that we can experience life in multifaceted ways. Being created as male image bearers and female image bearers is indispensable for us to carry out our divinely given mandate to build society. And I'm not just talking about procreation. I'm just talking about building a healthy culture. And a healthy church culture, a healthy church environment requires brothers and sisters in Christ practicing common Christ-like capacities together. Scripture says that gender is given by God, not determined by your heart. This is the biblical worldview. And it asserts that the Creator God exists as stated in the Bible and that the Bible is true. Francis Schaeffer once said, Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural, but rather truth spelled with capital T. Truth about total reality, not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality. The intellectual holding of that truth and then living in the light of that truth. And, and if we do not consciously develop a biblical, orthodox, Christian worldview, then we're going to unconsciously absorb the world's worldview, and we're going to find ourselves reaching over and borrowing someone else's tools, which are generally accepted by the population or the culture at large, but you're not borrowing simply an isolated toolbox. You're borrowing an entire philosophical worldview system, which will have its own particular bias to every problem and if we fail to be salt and light to a lost culture we may end up being shaped by that culture the tools you use shape the user so we must be utterly convinced that there is a biblical perspective on 
everything and not just spiritual matters. Proverbs 1, 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We often read that and we think, well, it's the beginning of spiritual wisdom or religious wisdom. That's not what the text says. The text does not place those kinds of limitations. Some think that the fear of the Lord is the foundation of religious knowledge, but that's not what the text says. All knowledge depends on religious truth. Nothing exists apart from God's will, and nothing falls outside the scope of the central points in history. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Your body tells God's story. God made your body. You can trust your body. The crux of this issue is a worldview difference. And we must reject the two-story fact-value split. Where will we locate authority, knowledge, and trustworthiness? Who has the authority to tell me how to live and to decide what's right and wrong? Well, who knows what's best? And who can I trust to lead me to what will be a fulfilling life? The various answers to those questions will set us on paths that lead to very, very different destinations. Biblical Christianity locates authority, knowledge, and trust where it can find firm, stable, fulfilling foundations. And that is in the crucified and risen Creator, Jesus Christ. You can trust Jesus. He knows what He's talking about. Amen? Do you know that when the Apostle Paul was in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, he was the only Christian? <laughs> he was surrounded by adherence to a worldview different than his own. So what did he do? He approached courteously. He treated his listeners with dignity. He found common ground where he could. But then he took a stand. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I contend that he who rises from the dead gets to be in charge. Amen.